0: All right, well, uh, this morning, we are kind of in between some uh, things that we have planned uh, in the new year. We have planned uh, a series that we're calling Simplify." And I, I really started thinking about, not only is it a new year as', as we'll, you know people remind us often, it's a new decade. And if you thought, you know, your, your resolutions for your new year uh, were good enough? Probably not, because you probably need to be thinking more like decade resolutions, right? And just that when I think of resolutions that we need to implement in the new year, and I actually, you know, there's, there's certain ones that I'm like, yes, I'm going to finally do this or that. And, and not to take away from any of that that may be helpful, but really it seems like an additional burden is, is is what we're viewing and looking at. Like, okay, we need we need to do this and this. And, and I think sometimes in our crazy busy culture and schedule, it's not so much that we need to do more. It's just that we need to focus and do the right things and kind of prioritize more. And, and God has called us in many ways throughout Scripture. We see this picture of the life that God has called us to that is described more as a, a simple life, a life full of peace, a life that's not full of the burdens of religion or the burdens of, of um, uh, different things that we may think and put our focus on that, that's going to give fulfillment, uh, but rather focusing on more eternal things. And so we're just going to look at this whole concept in scripture of, of simplicity. Um, so that will start in a couple weeks. Next, next week, Nate will be um, uh, sharing God's word with us um, as I have surgery. Are you guys worried about me? I have surgery on Friday, so pray for me. I have to have my wisdom teeth out. I'm worried, all right? I'm going to be in the, office, the doctor's office with all these teenagers, and they're going to be like, what are you doing here? Um, so uh, yeah, just something. I, yes. Anyways, uh, so this morning, I really just wanted to share one of my favorite books of the Bible with you, and I'm going to preach an entire book of the Bible, okay? So get comfortable. We're looking at, well, I call it a postcard, if you see in your program. It's really more of a postcard than a letter. It's considered a letter. We have these, these epistles, which just simply means letters in the New Testament that are given to churches, and this one's really given to an individual, and it's kind of unique, And we're just going to look at this incredible letter. It's right before Hebrews, if you're trying to find it or wonder where it is. It's after all the T. There's lots of T books of the Bible in in the New Testament towards the very end. And then you come along, Philemon. And Philemon has one chapter in it, and it's this very personal letter. It's a letter that Paul writes. He writes while he's in prison in Rome. He's in house arrest. Um, the Romans were pretty smart, I think, when it comes to this. They're like, hey, someone's uh, being imprisoned or, or um, you know, in jail, and, and maybe they don't see him as a huge threat. Let's just put them in house arrest, meaning that they've got to kind of take care of themselves. Like The Roman government doesn't have to really pay for their you know, living or anything. They've got to figure out someone else to do that. Uh, But they're still kind of, you know, uh, restricted within their house. So he's in house arrest in Rome, um, and he's cranking out letters and writing. God is using him, inspiring him to write Bible. And much of the New Testament we get um, through his writings being in prison. And he comes across, he writes to this guy Philemon. That's why it's named that. It's to Philemon. And Philemon is in Colossae. Now, now, Paul didn't write uh, start a church in Colosse. From what we can gather and understand, there's a gathering of believers there, and his he, he there's some writing that Paul um, that we read of Paul's that says that he wants to go there, and he's heard that the gospel's spreading around, the good news is spreading around, and some believers have gathered together, and a church has pretty com- pretty much come together and formed in Colossae, which is. Um, in modern-day Turkey, it's near the area where, where some other uh, churches, Paul, did start. Um, it's in that area. And he's writing to this individual about kind of a personal matter of, of something that's, that's come up, and, and uh, he's, he's kind of addressing this. But what's so beautiful about this is he, he's telling this individual, Philemon, how he should act as one who has encountered Jesus. And, and, and in this situation that he has, and, and I don't want to give it away. I just want to read through it and walk through what the situation is. But basically, he's just saying, here's as followers of Christ, because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we're going to act very differently in our relationships and in our circumstances. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. So in Philemon chapter 1, the only chapter... It starts by uh, Paul opening this way. The letter is from Paul, a prisoner, this letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. Now, Paul does have a scribe, and so he's kind of dictating this, and that actually comes up in the letter as well. goes on to say, I am writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister, uh, Apthia, and to... Our fellow soldier, archipus, uh, and to the church that meets in your house. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So he opens this letter uh, speaking of the grace and peace of Jesus, and he says, Hey, basically, in our terminology, uh, you're meeting in your life group, you're meeting in your house with other believers. And, and that's how he addresses him, and he knows what's happening there. And these two people that he mentions were, were kind of by, by, this is, you know, we don't have all the pieces put into place and know exactly what's happening, but the best guess is this is his wife and his son, because this is just a personal letter, and, and Paul's mentioning them as well. And, and he opens, though, Paul opens by saying he's a prisoner for preaching the good news, And he has no problem with that. If you look at the tone of how Paul is writing in that circumstance, he isn't bogged down by the fact that he's in prison. I don't know about you. I'm in any sort of prison, even being house arrest at home or whatever. I am in a pretty bad place. I'm especially, as he mentions, it's for proclaiming Jesus, Like, okay, I'm doing something for God, and I'm in a a situation that nobody would want to be in. And yet, it doesn't get Paul down. Paul is still full of hope and joy. Number one, this is his position, I think, or this is his perspective. Our position in heaven should always trump our place in life. And that's just the life because he knows Jesus. And, And we see this in... Um, in the beginning of uh, Galatians and Colossians, he, he talks about having this eternal view and perspective. And whatever is going around in his life, whether it's just or fair or not, he really, it doesn't, uh, it's not that he doesn't care. I mean, if he could just have his choice, I don't think he'd go through difficult, painful things. But in the midst of this life where difficult, painful things are always going to be a part of life. He's got a different perspective on, on things. And and he doesn't allow the troubles that he's in. He just said, well, God can use it. Well, God's going to use it. Well, I'm in prison. I'm, I'm, I'm being tortured. I'm, well, God can use it. And, and he uses uh, the gifts and talents that God gives him as, like writing uh, and sharing truth and, and theology and allows God to use that in such a powerful way. Verse 4, it goes on to say, I always thank my God when I pray for you. So we see his attitude. He's not bitter. He's not broken. I always, I always thank God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. And I am praying that you would put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. I don't know about you. We got this, this guy who's a huge, huge leader in the church, an apostle. He writes a personal letter to somebody. And I don't know if this is just my background and my tendency. If I got a letter for, from some big higher up and, and, and I, I find out so-and-so wrote you a letter, I'm a little nervous you know, the CEO of your company or something or the, you know, the governor of the state or, or someone like with a high position, well-known, sends you a letter. I'm going, oh, no, what is this about? What did I do? Why are they addressing me in this specific way? And it begins with just crazy amounts of lifting up and encouragement and love. And, and a reminder, though, as he gets to a point of how he's going to really challenge him to do something that's not easy, he, he reminds them of, of God's love, of how God has, has, uh, has changed this guy, Philemon, to be a generous person because of who Jesus is and how he's changed his heart. Number two, um, not sharing our faith may mean missing out on God's plan and our purpose. And that's what Paul points out here as he he opens up and talks about how God uh, planned and directs us to to be generous to other people and to connect with other people and to connect his love and his truth to other people and to be kind to other people. And not sharing that is really missing out on a big part of, of what God wants. Uh, in our lives. And Paul's reminding him of this as he gets to a, a stronger point in verse 8. That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you, consider this a request from me, Paul, an old man. And <laughs> I just think he gets kind of I don't know. I'm like, come on, Paul. He's kind of, he kind of lays it on here a little thick, though. He's like, I could just make you do this. I mean, I'm an apostle. I could just tell you, like, here's what God's clearly commanded. But, you know, I I, I want you to, I want you to do this on your own. Uh, But, hey, I'm an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child. Now, now, you'll you'll understand what the situation is going on here, but I want you to notice how he refers to this other individual that's kind of the the crux of this letter, the topic of this letter. My child, uh, someone else said it. I said this 500 times. (laughs) Onesimus, 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 Onesimus. Onesimus, don't name your kid Onesimus. Okay. <laughs> Onesimus, my child. All right. I, I became his father. All right. My child. I'm his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus has been, uh, hasn't been much, hasn't been of much use to you in the past. But now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I'm sorry. I'm still on Christmas vacation. Okay. Onesimus, um, what's interesting is Paul is using a, a, a play on words here because his name means useful. And so he's saying, hey, this guy named useful hasn't been very useful to you. But now he is useful. Now he's actually living up to his, his namesake. Um, Verse uh, 13 uh, goes on to, to say, I wanted to keep him here with me, uh, with me while I am in these chains for preaching the good news. And he would have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you uh, to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. So again, he kind of makes that point. Um, it seems you lost Onesim- Onesimus For a little while, so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will, uh, now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And so now we understand the context of who Onesimus. Come on, Ben. Um, who he is, he is a slave. Now, let's talk about that. that I mean, we, we think of he's the slave of Philemon. And, and in this culture, we have to understand the context, not to put any beautiful light on slavery in any way. Our context as Americans, when we think of slavery, it is a different sort of form. In the Roman culture, uh, historians will say anywhere from a third to a half of all the people in the Roman Empire were considered servants or slaves." So you would have doctors and lawyers and and, and people of high status even considered slaves in this type of setup and arrangement and culture. Um, There's a historical thing uh, that, that, that makes light of this and shows kind of the different context that it was the Senate debated at the time of the Roman Empire um, there were so many people that they couldn 't tell who was a slave and who wasn 't because it didn 't have to do with ethnicity or race or background or anything like that. It, it was just a position that you had if you had the right papers or the right um, uh, the right means to get uh, to be an official Roman citizen, uh, whatever that took um, y- it, it, it was something that, that could, be by, with a price, uh, could be gained with a price, could be gained with certain uh, status and connections that you had, uh, but, but so many people were slaves in the Roman Empire that the Senate debated, we can't even tell who's who. And so let's make all of the people who aren't Roman citizens wear some kind of badge or some kind of thing on their sleeve or something. And the Senate debated it, and they said, well, there's so many, they would realize that there's probably more of them than us, than Roman citizens. And so it was this incredibly common position. And, and in some ways, it may have been more like an indentured servitude type of situation. But regardless, in this culture, in this setting... Not quite the, the horrible atrocity of, of the history of slavery within our country uh, completely being based on race and those kind of things. It's a little different cultural context. But, but what was uh, the understanding was this uh, person um, was part of uh, their, their responsibility was to Philemon. And, and what did he do? He just ran away, basically. And it sounds like he ran to Rome. And Rome was very attractive for people in that culture, in that setting, because Rome had great entertainment. Um, the, the part of the, the leadership wanted to kind of appease the masses. Um, they even had uh, a lot of free food that they would give the masses, and they would entertain them. Uh, often, much of the entertainment it really is a model for our current entertainment, the, the Colosseum and the Great Games, uh, that they would, that they would, you know, um, would take place there. Many of the seats were free, and it was just a place where, where a lot of, a lot of the entire Roman Empire people who wanted to better their situation in life would be drawn to going to Rome. So it sounds like that's what happened to this individual, and he comes there and he connects with Paul. Now I, I don't know if he, you know, knew, hey, my, the, my boss, uh, he he has heard the message that you're preaching or something. If there was some connection, if he felt he needed to go meet Paul or something, we have no idea. But we do know that Onesimus comes to know Jesus. And because he comes to know Jesus, his status of whatever he's done, wherever he's been, whatever he's classified in that culture, doesn't matter at all. The, the Paul of all people. The guy who writes most of the New Testament says, he's my child. I'm his father. We're one. And hey, I find out his story that he ran away from someone else who knows Jesus. And I happen to be writing this letter to this gathering, this church in Colossae, and that's where we get Colossians. And so I'm going to write this letter, and I'm going to send it with Onesimus. I'm going to send it with him to take to this gathering, and he's going to have his own little personal letter to restore what has kind of been broken. And, and because he's on the run, and, and he's writing Philemon to say, look, you have every right to imprison him, to have him fined, to do whatever uh, the law you know, would allow. But he said, man, we do things different because we know Jesus. And that's the point of this whole letter that's, I think, really encouraging. Um, Moving on, uh, did we read through 17? You guys, help me out. Okay, yes, we did. Thank you. On verse 18, it says, "If he was wronged, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me." And I love that heart of Paul too. I mean, the same, the same thing. Like when someone is your brother or sister in Christ. Even if they've got something in the past and they've got some obligation, our hearts are so uh, in line with and connected with other people who know Jesus. Man, if we can be a blessing and even take on some of that burden, he says, just charge it to me. Uh, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Now, Paul, you know, he does a little drive-by guilting there. I just won't mention this part. He says, and we see this in some other letters (coughs) where he writes it himself. Um, But but I think more than trying to do a drive-by guilting here by Paul, I think he's just trying to look. The context of all of this is that everything is different once you come to Jesus. We don't operate the same way the rest of the world would operate. Verse 20. Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident, as I write this letter, that you will uh, you will do what I ask and even more. One more that thing, please prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Um, and then he kind of ends the letter, uh, speaking of some others, and and I love how the the entire uh, book ends, and isn't that and that's why I call it more like a postcard. Uh, Verse 25, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, uh, be with your spirit. So he opens with grace. He ends with grace. That is the crux of what we understand that changes the way that we deal with relationships, especially relationships between other believers. Um, And it's just a beautiful uh, picture of, of what we should do. A couple things that I think... Remind me of the attitude that Jesus taught uh, in having this kind of perspective on things is the Lord's prayer, you know. And I don't know what tradition you may have grown up with if that's something familiar to you, because uh, there are many traditions that would just recite the Lord's prayer. or Something that that you can, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And you may be real familiar with that. I know a lot of people who have some familiarity with the prayer have n- never, many people who I've met with and talked with about it, have never really understood what they're saying. They just think, well, I, we're kind of praying this prayer and somehow that's like a uh, uh, some kind of um, formula that we say and God has to do something for us. But that, that's not the idea. What is in the prayer, uh, part of it, and part of the most challenging part of the prayer is that we we pray, forgive us as We forgive others or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And what we're saying there, and this lines up with other teaching, is that, okay, God, I want you to forgive me at the same level that I am willing to enable to extend forgiveness to other people who have done me wrong. And that's a challenging prayer to pray, right? Right? And I think the next time we, you know, maybe have that opportunity to go through that. But it, it, it follows what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. Very quickly, let me read to you one of my favorite parables of Jesus, talking about forgiving others and how important it is for us to have incredible forgiving hearts. Uh, Matthew eighteen twenty one. Peter came to him and asks, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? And then he answers his own question. I think he wants to impress Jesus because what he does is he takes what is taught by probably the, the religious leaders of his time and his culture three times. To forgive someone three times, that is so generous and gracious. So what he does is he doubles it and then Peter style, he adds one. He's like, seven times? And he's thinking Jesus is going to be so impressed. He's been talking about forgiveness so much. I get it. Jesus, I'm willing to forgive someone seven times. And Jesus says, no, you pulled a Peter. Not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now, he's not getting out. Peter's not getting out his his calculator of the day, the you know, or something, and figuring out how many times. Jesus is saying, you don't keep count. There's not, there's not a, a, a level or a number of, of times that you should stop being forgiving. Therefore, the kingdom, and then he tells this incredible parable. Kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with a servant who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him Millions of dollars. Now, the the specific term that we get there is just basically a crazy amount of money. You could say a gazillion bazillion dollars. Like something, you know, kids would say to just say the biggest, craziest amount of money. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him a million dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owed to pay the debt. But the man fell down before the master, begged him, please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Absolutely impossible. I mean, someone comes up, they got a trillion dollar debt. Let's try to be realistic here, okay. Hey, I will get you your money. (laughs) No, it's, it's impossible. There's no way this guy could do that. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat, um, demanded instant payment. And we get a little, a little modern-day translation here, a few thousand dollars. It, it, there's debate about how much it was, but it was definitely a, uh, an amount where if someone said, I'll get you your money, it would be reasonable that they actually could do that in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, the, the closest thing I've heard is maybe up to a third of a year's uh Wages and maybe as little as something like a month's wage, you know a significant sum not not something to just' you know, I'll forget no, don't worry about it but um, but something that was was absolutely doable um, but his credit uh, verse twenty nine his fellow servant fell down and begged, be patient with me, verse thirty, but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested, put into prison until his debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what, and this is, I mean, this isn't like, do, 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 another wonderful, fuzzy, cozy story from Jesus. No, this is, this is rattling. This is something to take pause and go, this is Jesus. These are the red letters. These are the direct words of Jesus and his teaching. That's what my heavenly father will do to you. If you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. And so this morning, as we need to just wrap up, um, are there, who in your life has done you the most wrong that you just hold a grudge against, you hold bitterness against, you, you, you just, it's that ex, that boss, that neighbor, that family member. If you've encountered the love and forgiveness of God, which is so far greater you can't even compare it according to Jesus's description here. You cannot compare the forgiveness that God has extended to you as a believer to whatever the worst thing that has been done to you. And I don't mean to minimize that, but in comparison, we have to have the perspective, the eternal perspective that we're called to have. Number three, true Christianity is seeing how we love those who have wronged us and are different than us. And I think that's why Paul is so concerned that, that not you, okay, you're in this life group in Colossae and you sit around and talk about this incredible new theology of the gospel. And I think part, Paul's heart here is going, don't just sit in your life group and talk about the Bible. Do it. Here's an instance where someone who has done you wrong and, and you have every right under the law to have them punished and whatever and try to get back what you've lost. But this person now knows Jesus, and he's your brother or sister in Christ. And so we, we totally have a different view and a different perspective. And that's what's going to call people to go, that is different. That is supernatural. That's something that I want to be a part of. I want to know that kind of love that's, that's acted out through that kind of forgiveness. Quickly in Colossians 3 10 through 5. Um, I just feel like I've got to throw this in here as I'm trying to shorten this up that, that Paul makes this distinction so strongly and clearly about how people are identified. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. So I want you to think of Onesimus, if I could say his name, carrying his personal letter, but he's also carrying the Bible, another book of the Bible, Colossians, and he's bringing it back to this, this church group, and these are the words that are within it. And so Paul is reiterating, I think, this to this this group of people following Jesus. Since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourselves with um, with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your heart. For a member of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. The last thing in your program, love, loving others happens when we remember that we deserved a death penalty. I don't mean that to try to scare you or base this in fear, but it's having a correct perspective and understanding that we deserve separation from a holy God that I deserve a death penalty, a spiritual, eternal death penalty. But because of God's love and goodness and grace, he's given me something completely different. So how, how can I hold bitterness and unforgiveness in my life and in my heart towards anybody else based on what I've received? It's ridiculous. And that's part of what Jesus was pointing out. And that's part of the beauty of not just a parable, not, it's an incredible parable, but I love that we get a real-life example in, the, in this book, in this postcard of Philemon.